Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Frequent listeners might want to reproach me for yet another podcast on Canada and the First World War. My response is, well, if we can't talk about it here, where can we talk about it? Books on this subject are simply not discussed out there, and it's a real shame for two reasons. The first is because we, what happened to this country between 1914 and 1918 was so profoundly grave that it cannot be forgotten. The second reason is that there are so many fantastic books coming out on this topic, we'd be fools not to cover them. With me today is Jonathan Vance, professor of history at Western University, and without a doubt, one of Canada's leading writers on remembering. I asked him to join me to talk about his new book, A Township at War, which just won the Chalmers Award for Ontario History. That prize is administered by the Champlain Society. The book is published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. I reached Dr. Vance at his office in London, Ontario. Jonathan Vance, welcome to the mic. Thanks very much. It's it's good to be here with a, with you in a virtual sense. So first, my congratulations on winning the Chalmers. Just when we all thought that everything had been said about Canada and the First World War, you show up with an innovative micro-history on East Flamborough, Ontario. So my question is, why there, why then, and why now? Uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, there are so many wonderful books out there on Canadian communities in the First World War, local histories. Uh, about places like Montreal and Toronto and Regina and and Winnipeg, I was interested in in the other Canada, rural Canada, which is where the majority of Canadians lived in 1914, uh, and so is is more I think representative of the Canadian experience. And uh, very selfishly, I I picked the area that I came from, uh, Township of East Flamborough in southern Ontario. Uh, for no other reason that that I know it well, I know the sources well, I know the people. Uh, and I thought I could uh, uh, bring a dimension, a, a kind of personal dimension to this story to maybe make it come off the page a little more. Well, you certainly succeed in that regard. East Flamborough, for our listeners, is that little area that's wedged between Burlington and Hamilton. And it has, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but your book focuses on a town called Waterden. Waterdown. 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 Yeah. Excuse my French. <laughs> Waterdown. Right. Uh, I mean, Waterdown as, a, as a, a, a legal entity actually no longer exists. The, the township and everything around it has been uh, uh, consumed by the city of Hamilton. Uh, however, the, the, uh, there is still a, a fierce local pride in Waterdown and in the township. Uh, and of course, that was the the political unit in 1914 that really mattered to Canadians, the township and the, and the village. What kind of place was this in 1914? You say it's, it's rural, but how many people lived there? What did they live off of? A uh, couple of thousand uh, population in the, in the entire township. It was primarily uh, agricultural, uh, like the vast majority of Canadian townships. It had, in the 1890s and early 1900s, flirted with becoming a, uh, an industrial centre, uh, there was a, a good creek running through it, so lots of water power. Uh, and at one time or another, there were there were a couple of dozen mills along the creek. But the creek eventually, uh, water levels went down and the mills burned down and, and uh, industries moved away. And, and then the village became a, a service center for the agricultural township, which is really what it was for, for most of the 20th century. Now... Before we get into some of your findings, I have to ask you the, the Champlain Society question, which is always about sources. Mm-hmm. What, what were your sources for this? This, this? this book came out of a 
a, a personal ambition. I mean, you know this area. Uh, most books, let's be blunt, most books in Canadian history come out because there's been some new untapped uh, resource that's been found, a, a trove of letters, uh, some sort of a um, phone of, of documents. Mm-hmm. But you, you did this in an inverse fashion, and yet you found rich material. What did you write this book from? <laughs> well, I knew that because I grew up there and I knew all the, the people involved, um, I knew there, was, uh, there were personal collections out there. Um, and it's the situation where if you're, if you're from an area and you know who to talk to and, and they know you and they know your family, your, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, um, doors open. Uh, and so you can get access to things that, that someone coming in as a stranger uh, wouldn't. And so I was able to locate a whole bunch of, of personal collections of, of uh, letters from men and women overseas, but also uh, papers relating to local patriotic organizations, uh, this sort of thing, which, which in some cases I was eventually get, able to get transferred to the local archives so that others could use them in the future. It really is a fantastic resource that you've assembled there. Well, and, and I think this sort of resource exists for, for any small community. Um, and I think in the past, historians have, have looked down on, on local history, particularly rural history, as, as kind of... Boring, boring. Boring, antiquarian, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, parochial. Yeah. Uh, but the resources out there are, are wonderful because they, um, people kept this sort of stuff. They kept it in their attics, in their basements, uh, in the public library. Um, there's amazing stuff out there, so it's it's a it is a, a rich new kind of source that we need to look at more. Now, there's you open your book and you close your book with one particular character. Tell us about Mr. Claire Lankin. Clarence Lankin, what a what a, uh, a fascinating guy. So he was the last survivor of of people from this area who went overseas in the First World War. Um, his his upbringing, his background was was very traditionally lived. Actually, he lived just on the uh, outside edge of the township, so really in the neighboring township. But he was—he uh, knew the area well, and he knew everybody, and he played ball there, and and went to fairs there, and uh, dated uh, girls from the township. Um, I knew the family, but when I first talked to him, he was, I think, 104. Unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> amazing. And and what struck me was his um, the clarity of his of his thinking. Uh, he remembered his life back then. Uh, with incredible sharpness, and it was just fascinating to talk to him because I, I really wanted to be able to to learn about what happened, but also to, to visualize what it was like to live in this area in during the First World War. So, when did you interview him? I interviewed him. Oh, it was a long time before I actually saw. Maybe ten, fifteen years ago. So you really took advantage of somebody who was still there. I mean, had you waited, had you delayed your project, this source would not have existed. Well, clearly. exactly. Uh, and I mean, that's my my. Uh, the one thing I did right instead of working on this decades ago when, when all sorts of other people were alive. But again, I had a, um, a contact with the Laking family and I knew some people and they were able to um, to indicate to Claire that I was uh, okay to talk to. Because, you know, when you're the last survivor, it, it's you tend to get a lot of calls from that you don't necessarily want to deal with. And he, he never told his story before? He told it once or twice. He, he showed me a bunch of... Um, Newspaper articles with various Toronto papers. He lived in in Don Mills, I think it was. Right. Um, and whenever he passed a milestone, sort of ninety five or a hundred or whatever, <laughs> they'd do a little thing in the in the uh, Toronto paper. But all was the same stories. Right. Uh, and I I had a feeling there was more there. And and when I got to talk to him, there was a lot more there. Now 
I presume he passed away. He did, yes, yeah. He was sort of the, the third to last to go, I think. How? Oh, really? So he's really at the end. And how old was uh, he, he when was he passed 100, away? 107, 108, something like that. Well, and this it's, is... a, it's amazing just to sit down with someone who had lived in three different centuries. That was what, yeah, what you're kind quite of blew right. my mind. You're quite right. Doesn't that fascinating? Now, yeah. tell us, so when did Mr. Lakin uh, sign up? He was, I mean, he was quite young. So he signed up in, in uh, just when he finished high school. Uh, he had trained to um, work in the bank, uh, which was a, a, a very typical career back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was 17 at the time in 1917. Um, his father was, was dead set against him joining up, uh, thought military service was the road to moral ruin. Moral ruin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and made it clear that if, if uh, Claire got himself in, into uniform, uh, even if he survived the war, he needn't bother coming home. Wow. Uh, because he would be a reprobate from having served in the army. Good Lord. They eventually patched that up. What was the attitude, Jonathan? What was the attitude towards towards Germany, towards war in, in, in East Flamborough, in a small rural well, community? Well, it's, it's uh, I mean, first of all, for, for the first year, war is, is largely an abstraction. So it's something that has no real uh, meaning to them that they can put into context. Um second thing to keep in mind is that when the war starts, it's the beginning of harvest season. So, you know, people in rural areas have more important things to do than, than think about the war. Mm. Uh, and so they, they seem to have marked the coming of the war with great excitement and anticipation uh, and then gotten right back to their, to their work. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the most striking things to me was the ability of, of, of people to get on with their normal lives, even while war was in in process, um, they seem to have an ability to almost to compartmentalize their thinking. And yet people did sign up, young men did sign up. What would be their typical life experience once they had enrolled? Um, I mean, the, the, another thing that I, I found really interesting was the degree to which rural society was, was mobile. Mm. Um, they were used to, to traveling a lot more than, than we imagine. Uh, and they weren't uh, kind of shy about about selling up everything and moving to the other side of the country. Oh, really? And so they tended to see enlistment, some of them anyways, as uh, a, a good job opportunity, sure. uh, a way to get some, some experience, some training that they might be able to put to use afterwards. Uh, there was little reluctance to uh, volunteer uh, until very late in the war. Mm. Um, and... Uh, it was when the, the big numbers of locals started going overseas in, in late 1915, early 1916, that I think the abstraction of the war became uh, much more tangible. Uh, it became much more real for the people in the, left in the township. So they, they sign up, they go to Toronto? They do Sign up the way they went to, some of them went to Niagara, some of them went to uh, Camp Borden, uh, Berryfield. I mean, they, they seem to have spread themselves out almost entirely through the Canadian Expeditionary Force. There was a, a one local battalion, but the majority of people from the township actually found their way into other uh, battalions for various reasons. And they write home. I mean, your your, your book is full of letters uh, home from, from various soldiers. What are, their, what are their thoughts? I mean, again, I'm asking you to categorize very broadly, but what do they typically reveal about life on the front? The one thing they reveal that's that's the most consistent is how important it is to them to maintain ties with home. Mm. Uh, there's no sense that you 
we used to get in some of the anti-war literature of, of this deep divide between civilians and soldiers. These are men and women who really want to keep in touch with, with home. Letters mean an awful lot to them more than, than we in an age of instant communication can possibly um, uh, understand. And so writing and reading letters is is incredibly important to them. Actually, that brings up a, a thought in my mind. Do we have, I mean, I guess it really depends on the individual soldier. We do have now, as a result of various initiatives, a, a good sense of the letters that were written home from various soldiers. But do we have letters from home written to the to the front, the soldiers um, on the front? I mean, that's, certainly not to the same degree because right. they weren't, soldiers going to the front line were not, were told not to take letters with them. Right. And so, That's an important point, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. So most of the correspondence we have is one way. Right. Um, which gives certain challenges to the historian. Hmm. Uh, uh, but any letters that they received, they would either lose track of or... Or destroy. Uh, Oftentimes, they would simply get worn out by being read and reread time after time after time. You can just imagine, but how important it was for them to know what's happening in the neighborhood, what's happening to the family, what's happening to the grocer, that kind of stuff. Oh, exactly. Yeah, that that I think constitutes their kind of lifeline to to normalcy is being able to to know what's happening at home. That that allows them to endure. Now, one of the events that you invoke is the Battle of the Somme in 1916. How did that affect East Flamborough? Well, before that, the the I think the township got used to having um, casualty lists uh, uh, that brought sort of one or two fatalities to the to the township a week or so. Um, through the sum, they start getting one or two a day, um, and they start you start getting families who have uh, are suffering multiple deaths, uh, and so the you kind of get the sense of of loss in war is becoming a real weight uh, that's felt collectively, uh, not just by uh, the odd family, but but is becoming a collective weight on the township as a whole. Um, and so the song, almost, when, when yeah. you throw yourself into the sources, you can almost feel a kind of sense of, of suffocation coming over them, which is, is quite, it's almost palpable, it's quite powerful. This is through the battles of 1916, the summer yeah, of 16? Yeah, through 1916, and by, by the winter of 1617, um, I mean, they, they seem to look to that winter as a time to come up for air, if you like, catch their breath. And, uh, and then Vimy before happens. Before the next thing begins. <laughs> and then Vimy happens in April And then 17. Vimy happens, yeah. Another devastating impact on the community. Well, exactly, and, and we have the same sorts of, of uh, casualists, the same sorts of... Uh, uh, families losing multiple family members. And as, as uh, my colleague Dean Oliver said some time ago, the, the nationalist myth of Vimy uh, is certainly out there from the beginning, but, but the fact that you're, you fought and died to, to make the nation doesn't mean that you're any less, your friends are any less cold or wet or hungry. Or... Right. Now, I th- do, do, I got, do I have you right here? Um, you say that 28 people died? 28, soul, 28, 28 men uh, that left the uh, the district died in the First World War? Yeah. And that's out of, out of 2,400? Uh, roughly, no, no. yeah, for the whole, yeah, the whole population. The whole now population that. is 2,400. 210 men left, you said. Yeah. And 28 of them died. Yeah. Now, you have a statistic here that just staggered me. You said that 66% of these people knew each other somehow. Well, we're related to each other. They were related to each yeah. other. Yeah. How do, you, how, how do you describe that? That was the, the aha moment for me. That because I was, I was looking for a way to understand 
the impact of of the war on communities. And I, I mean, I've written about this in the past yes. uh, from a kind of detached standpoint. But I was looking looking for a way that I, I personally could make sense of it. Uh, and then I came upon this this um, post war account of of a, the funeral of a, an ancestor of mine, and I noticed that they listed the pallbearers for the funeral, and I, I noticed how many of the names were were familiar, not only from the um, having served in the war, but from my own family genealogy. So I started doing some digging and building up family trees and seeing who was related to who. And I mean, we're looking in in this rural township, and I would argue probably in every rural township, maybe two or three extended families who take in the vast majority of the population. That really is that really is important. It's I think it is because it's I mean this is the the means that um, the impact of loss is is magnified many times because there's this interconnectedness. These people who suffered such enormous family losses, what was going through their lives through this war? In terms of the economics of East Flamborough, what's what's happening to this community? Is it still a stable uh, agricultural, or is there, through the war experience, uh, increased industrialization? How does How does the war effort impact that area? Well, the war began just as East Flamborough was starting to, I guess you might say, modernize. Uh, so the railway had just come in a year or two before the war began. Um, hydroelectricity had just come in. The telephone had come in a few years before. People were starting to buy automobiles. Uh, so it was starting to uh, – the township was starting to kind of reach out and, and make connections with the outside world. And then the war came along and kind of froze everything. Um, and so I think that that fact and the fact that Waterdown lost so many of its men and women um, – Kind of undercut it uh, any any hope of progress that might have because like most small communities, I mean they were very uh, boosterish before the war. Right. Uh, their town was going to be the best town, and mm. and after the war, it's it's hard to make that argument. You make a point uh, in the introduction to your book that the the big national issues, things like like conscription and and the the rights of Franco-Ontarian minorities, the whole issue around Regulation 17, something that really animated communities in Quebec. Um, Women's rights, you mentioned, really didn't seem to have a whole lot of life in East Flamborough. I mean, how do you explain that? Well, I mean, one of the the points I made is that we'd, we'd like to imagine that our ancestors, and there's a lot of my ancestors in this book, we'd like to imagine that they were, were, broad-minded and, and uh, far-seeing and thought about important issues and, and um, uh, debated uh, uh, key political matters. But people were, were remarkably insular. They had their own concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, and something like um, uh, minority education rights or um, union representation, labor issues, um, these don't impact the people of East Flamborough at all. So they have no reason to, to care about them. Uh, I expected to see more people interested in, in women's rights during the war in the village, but I thought there was no evidence in the local sources that, that anyone really cared about that. They were more concerned about the actual war effort? I mean, Well, but they're, they're partly, but they're also concerned about the state of the roads uh, <laughs> and who's going to clean up the creek and whether the, the people's outhouses are, are clean and... and um, loitering on the streets, incorrigibly uh, Canadian. <laughs> exactly, they have very, 
their concerns are very much of the moment. Um, I mean, sir, suffrage is an important issue. Uh, but my road's full of potholes, and that's a more important issue. Well, that leads us to the election of 1917, something I have a particular interest in. Of course. Um, you are a fine book on the subject. Well, thank uh, you. The East Flamborough contributed to supporting a union candidate. Mm-hmm. What was the impact of the election? Again, we're talking about the impact of events. Uh, was this uh, an event that was of, of a critical importance, or did people simply accept the fact that um, the union was more likely to be a better representative yeah. of their ambitions? That, that's one area that I was, I was disappointed in because there was so little in the local sources about the 1917 election. Uh, what I was able to find was from commentaries from people or journalists in the area, but outside of the township. Uh, and and it was I was really hoping to see some find some accounts of of candidates' meetings or speeches or or whatever. Um, but I didn't. Mm. Uh, and in the absence of, I mean, in, I know in some constituencies, as, as you've shown so well, there were certain other hot button issues. Yes. Um, People seem to have voted union almost by um, kind of acceptance that it was just the right thing to do. You make it sound like it was natural. Yeah. It was a natural progression of a community that was that was given to the war effort, that sacrificed in the war effort, and for them it seemed as though it was the logical thing to do was to support the union. I think, yeah, I think they just they, they would have said, well, well, of course you vote union. I mean, what? Why would you not? Um, and that was that. And then they went on to, to think about something else. So, <laughs> so I mean, looking back, um, you know, what, what this other, this something else, I mean, are there themes that you think, you, you wrote your book chronologically, something I really appreciated. Yeah. You, you write it in the way that people lived it day after day, year after year. Um, but there must have been themes that cut through that. I mean, as, as, for example, at any point, do people say, you know, we've had enough of war, or when is this going to end, or, or what? What are the themes that are carried through the, these this, these four traumatic years? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my one of my great interests was trying to see how these bigger national issues played out on a on a local scale, uh, and of course, finding out that that people didn't care about suffrage or majority language rights or or um, union recognition. That was part of that. Um, but I was also, in, inter, also interested in, say, conscription. So what does conscription look like mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a local level? Uh, and do the stereotypes that we get from, from the big cities and from uh, uh, other accounts, do they hold true in uh, rural areas? And I think that was a, was a big surprise, the way people seem to deal with conscription and, and um, defaulters and deserters and, and slackers. Um, I was, was, I think, almost moved by the degree to which people exercised an enormous degree of, of forbearance towards um, those who either declined to, to serve mm. or actively deserted. Because it doesn't fit in with the narrative right. that we've, we've been told. Right. Did, were people conscripted from East Flamborough? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they they were. Um, I mean, you you go to a tribunal in Hamilton, the nearest big city, right. uh, and if you wanted to to request a um, an extension, you would do it there. Mm. Um, most people in the township did not bother to request uh, exemptions. Their names don't appear in the in the local uh, tribunal lists. Mm. Um, so they they again took it with. Uh, well, of course, when you're conscripted, you you 
join up, that's fine. Right. But the, the striking thing was the degree to which they also accept people who, who evaded service, um, which I found really, as I say, uh, uh, almost moving because the uh, there was a great deal of tolerance and sympathy and empathy for, for young men who, for whatever reason, uh, didn't want to fight. Right. There was no white feather campaign. There's no uh, none of that shaming. This is it's an incredibly mature community. It strikes me. Well, it's it's also, and again, it ties back to the idea that everyone knows each other. So you you, it's very easy to hand out white feathers on on the street in a big city because you probably don't know the people. If you're doing that in a small town, you're you're handing it out to your your uh, customers or your friends or the people from the church choir or or your cousin. And it's not as easy to to engage in public shaming when you're you're shaming relatives. Uh, those are, are real people. They're not just kind of stereotypes. So that was a real eye-opener. I want to I talk to you about something you know well, and that's remembering. You say in your book that you knew many of these people uh, when you were a boy, when you were a young man. Uh, of course, they passed away and without you, of course, interviewing all of them. Yeah. But you knew a lot of these guys who went to war, and you knew the people who'd waited for them. How did this book... How did the writing of this book change the way you carried memory uh, about the war? Well, yeah. That, I mean, I mean, in some ways, that having known all these people was was one of the reasons I started to write about the First World War in the first place uh, thirty plus years ago, um, because I had taken a course in in British poetry, the First World War, and a few other uh, similar courses, and had been told how. Um, bitter and and um ruined and and um otherwise destroyed veterans had been that it was impossible to come through that experience and and still be normal and i remembered living in a small town with all these guys who were seemed to be quite normal so i i wanted to try and figure out where the the disconnect was uh and so that led me to the subject uh in the first place um and I think the the what this book showed me is uh, a level of stoicism that uh, was surprising. Now, whether it's a, a kind of characteristic of rural people, they don't tend to they tend to be kind of keep to themselves and do things on their own time and that. Um, whether it's a, a feature of living in a community where you know everyone and so there is is kind of a built-in support network. Um, I, I'm I'm still kind of trying to explain it, but the ability of people to get through this was was really quite remarkable. Well, Jonathan, I have to say your impact, the impact of your writing in helping us remember uh, through this book and through your other books, remembering the war effort, the war the war sacrifices of Canadians, has always been very uh, has been impressive and. Uh, but I want to ask you this question. I mean, we've gone through now the uh, 100th anniversary of the First World War. What's your sense of how Canada Canadians remember the First World War, firstly? And secondly, how would you assess the effort that was made to help us remember the First World War? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really good question. And I think what the the centenary began... Um, and and the first years were in a time of of change in political parties in Ottawa. So there was there was I would have to say relatively little uh, centralized work on on commemorating the war, observing the centenary. Uh, and I think that actually 
um, worked in in our favor as as historians, broadly speaking, because it encouraged a whole bunch of really interesting local initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and they uh, uh, took flight in communities across the country, people interested in, in seeing what happened to their school or their church or their village or whatever during the war. Um, digging into into people's private collections and, and finding old photographs and letters and that. And I think that uh, the fact that the centenary had such a, a kind of local hue to it in the first place um, revealed to us all sorts of, of resources that, that historians can use for years to come, but also acted as a kind of antidote to what I might call official level Vimeism. Right. Um and and reminded us that that yeah we can talk we can debate about about the the national impact but this war is, was a human tragedy first and foremost. But do you think we as Canadians did enough to remember the sacrifice of that First World War? Um, I mean, as as a historian, I say probably you you can can never do enough. But I think it, we did a lot more uh, at the local level than we might have done if there'd been an, an intensive kind of government campaign of remembrance as there was in, in Britain or in, in France or in Australia. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense it was, uh, local communities that, that kind of set the remembrance agenda, uh, rather than vice versa. Uh, and I think that's all to the good. How did this affect, how did writing this book affect your sense of memory? Cause you made it, I mean, you made it very personal. Yeah. Oh, very much so. This was, this was as much a kind of personal quest as anything. Um, that's a, it's a tricky question. Uh, I mean, in, in some of the work we do is, is, I mean, frankly, we do it cause we're curious ourselves and if others can, can get something out of that, uh, then so much the better, but we all start with a question that, that we personally are interested in answering. Uh, and if you can do that in a, in a, uh, a bigger sense, that's, um, that's terrific. I guess, sadly, the, the thing that remains with me from this book is that there was so much more that I could have written if I'd started earlier, the great regret of historians. Really? eh? <laughs> had you had a chance to interview more people? Had I had a chance of, if even 10 years or so ago, because I, I remember looking at, uh, when I got into it, finding out that uh, um, people I remembered so well from even when I was in high school, and at that time never knew their connection to the war. Right. Uh, suddenly it's it's was revealed to me and However, you never know, Jonathan. Maybe one day you'll find all their letters, and you can write another. Great you never. Book. I, I, <laughs> I think we all remain in hope, don't we, Patrice? That there'll be the uh, the the stuff out there yet to be found. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> hope springs eternal. Exactly, exactly. Thank you again, Jonathan, and congratulations on winning the Chalmers Award. A great pleasure. It was great to talk to you, Patrice. Nice talking to you. That was Jonathan Vance, the author of A Township at War, published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on October 28, 2019, and it was produced by Michael Smith. 
Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.